both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of Lord God going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Lord God in the midst of the tree of the garden. Then Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Then the man said, your sound, I heard it in the garden and I was afraid because I'm naked, I hid myself. Then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Lord God said to the woman, what did you do? And the woman said, the serpent deceives me and I ate. And Lord God said to the serpent, because you did this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above every animal of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. To the woman, the Lord God said, I will greatly increase your pain from conception to labor. In pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be toward your husband, yet he must rule over you. Then to the man, Lord God said, Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate of the tree which I commanded you, saying you must not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. With pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will sprout for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return from the ground, since from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Lord God made Adam and his wife tunics of skin and clothed them. Then Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So now in case he stretches out his hand and takes also from the tree of life and eats and lives forever, Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And God expelled the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, God had cherubim dwell along with the whirling sword of flame to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Because this story is so familiar, I'd like to start by stating very clearly what it does not say. It does not say that humans are inherently evil. In fact, it shows that evil is a distortion, a perversion of our inherent goodness. If your version of the gospel starts with how wretched and lost humans are, then you have missed a crucial point. The reason God cares so much and works so hard to restore us is because we were good in the first place. To be fallen also does not mean we're no longer good. We are each and all still wonderfully created in God's image and also we live in a state of fallenness. This story does not say where evil comes from. 
It doesn't bother to explain why there's a walking, talking, crafty snake in the garden. Based on what we read in the Bible, ancient people apparently had almost no interest in philosophical debates about the nature of evil and where it comes from. They just weren't interested. That's a very modern preoccupation of ours. Ancient people saw enough sickness and death and disaster that they knew evil was real, that the world is a broken place. We want to debate about evil because it's such a shock to our otherwise insulated lives. The harder things are for people, usually the less they seem to focus on why it's hard. Because when it comes to evil, knowing why isn't going to help us fix it. This story allows us to simply accept evil and brokenness as a reality in the world, which we have to do if we're gonna get on with the business of fighting it as God calls us to. This story also doesn't say that the woman tricked the man. It says that he was with her and she gave him the fruit, so we can't say one way or the other if he knew what he was doing. In the ancient Hebrew culture and in other cultures around them, men had power over women. Male-dominated society is as old as the world, and this story demonstrates that. For ancient people, this was a story about why women have hard lives and are dominated by their husbands. So if we aren't going to use this story to contemn the depravity of all people or debate the philosophical origin of evil or demonize women, then what is this story good for? Why do we need to keep this story when it has been so badly misused by religious communities for so long? Here's why I think we need it. And I'll say that for many of these insights, I am indebted to a book called Engaging the Powers by Walter Wink. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because this story actually has a lot to do with the principalities and powers we were talking about last week. This story reminds us that first and foremost, everything is created good. The world is a good place. We are good. And when they are functioning in their originally ordained way, the powers are good too. The powers are designed to provide the structure we need to order our lives. The created nature of everything in God's world is good. But also, all of these good things are broken. Not vile or shameful, not unrepairable, but most definitely broken. We are all good and we are all broken. This must be a universal truth because it keeps us all on the same level. We are all created in God's image and we are all broken. We are broken by what is done to us and we are broken by what we do. All of us, I'm no better than you are and you're no better than anyone else is. Race, class, age, sex, religion, politics, none of that makes any of us any better or any worse than anyone else. And we need this story to remind us of that because we are constantly tempted to compare and rank ourselves and act like we are better than someone else. 
We need this story because it reminds us that we are all the same, equally beautiful and equally broken. We also need this story to remind us that we can't fix the world. As much as we progressive Christians like to think that the salvation of the world rests on us, it doesn't. We have all broken something that we can't fix, whether it's a plate or a relationship. You know what that feels like. And accepting this is a huge relief to us. This is actually good news. When we accept that what is broken within us and between us and around us is something that we cannot fix entirely on our own, then we can stop feeling so responsible for everything. This does not mean that we give up, far from it. We keep working and living and waging spiritual warfare, but we are modest about the outcome. We live in reality. We know that every successful revolution eventually becomes the establishment. We know that all social movements are led by fallen humans and are never going to live up to our ideals. We know that we and all the people we love will never perfectly fulfill our own ideals. If we accept this reality, then we can learn to live and work within it. Instead of being shocked and crushed and angry every time things don't work out the way we want them to. We can find the balance between doing nothing and doing everything. Remember the quote I shared with you several weeks ago. We are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are we free to abandon it. Finally, we need this story to bolster our trust in God, to strengthen our faith. The place where everything starts to go wrong in this story is when the woman mistrusts God. She doesn't trust that God has her best interests in mind. She doesn't trust what God has told her. She thinks God is holding out on her. She thinks that she needs to do things herself. And that's when things break down. But this story reminds us that we can trust God, that even when we sin, God restores us. God does not, in fact, kill the humans for eating from the tree. And God is the one who makes clothes for them, who helps them to cover their nakedness, who soothes their sense of shame in a way that they weren't able to do for themselves. Yes, there are consequences to their lack of trust. God sends them out of the garden, apparently for their own good, because they shouldn't have both the knowledge of good and evil and live forever. Their brokenness opens up new possibilities for danger, and God removes them from that danger, even though that grace feels like punishment to them. Ultimately, God is the one who will fix all of it. Jews and Christians have interpreted that judgment against the serpent as a promise that God's Messiah will one day be victorious over all evil, that the serpent will crush the heel, but the man will crush the head. We think about that as a, as a um, prophecy about the Messiah. And Christians recognize that victory has been won 
in Christ. And so we trust that God can fix the brokenness in us and around us. We can't fix all of it, but we can choose to trust, to have faith. I hope you can see that whether you believe this story is factual or whether it's true for you in some other way, this story has the power to author us to help us make sense of what's happening around us, to help us write our stories of redemption. There is nothing that we can break, nothing that can be broken in us or around us that God cannot fix. We are not responsible for saving the world. God has already done that and continues to do it every day. Because this world is fallen, we are only going to get glimpses of salvation right now, like flowers growing through cracks in the pavement. But it's real. Those glimpses of glory are a promise, a down payment, the book of Ephesians says, of God's ultimate plan to bring everything in alignment under Christ. We are good. We are fallen. And we are redeemed all at the same time. Amen.